Welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 33 and we're reviewing Deep Breath, Demon Slayer, Kimetsu no Yaiba the movie, Mugen Train. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode, so you've been warned. I think you need like total concentration breathing just to pronounce the whole title of that movie i know it's so long demon slayer kimetsu no yaiba the the movie movie, mugen train (laughs) but we've done it we've returned to the theaters after over a year of not watching any movies in any theaters because everything's been closed and it was a very strange experience like Mm -hmm. it was a nice experience just being back and seeing something on the big screen you know anime of all things (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, like, the, the theater we went to had all the, the protocols, like social distancing and the lines to get snacks. Um, there were enough gaps between rows so that people weren't bunched up in seating, and obviously everyone had to wear masks. But it was just nice to be able to experience a movie in a theater, especially a movie like this, um, you know, with the upscale in animation production and even sound effects wise because we watched the i don't know if this movie was optimized for imax but we ended up watching an imax screening of the movie and you know the experience in an imax film is like unlike any other movie screening because it kind of just throws you into like each scene with all of the sound effects and visuals that are just coming at you there's way more immersion yeah um so although it was still kind of eerie not eerie but I guess unusual getting to watch this movie in the midst of the current situation it was still nice to go into again a theater rather than you know if they were to release this on a streaming service and watching it from home as a lot of other movies have been doing um during this pandemic yeah i agree i had full appreciation for the music sound and visuals being able to see it in a theater on an IMAX screen. I I think that was, I'm glad that we did that and we went to go see it with um, several of our friends and it was just a great experience. And I think that, you know, when we do eventually rewatch this movie at home on a streaming service, it's just not going to compare to actually seeing it in an IMAX theater. Because yeah, not at all. The, like, like you said, the level of um, detail and attention that went into the visuals alone, which were my favorite part of the movie, um, you just I don't think you can get that full appreciation for it in any other setting other than a movie theater. And, you know, on top of it just being an unusual year and a half overall, um, it's even more unusual to see the box office history that this movie is making. Um, just to pull some statistics, um, Mugen Train made box office history by becoming the biggest foreign language film debut in U.S. box office history which was previously held by 2004's martial arts epic Hero, which starred Oh, really? Lee. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. I didn't know that. Yeah. And Mugen Train made $21 million in its first weekend, only to be beaten out by Mortal Kombat. Because I think there are only like three or four movies out right now in theaters to even watch. Um, and back in Japan, where it released a year earlier, it grossed $368 million, becoming the most successful film ever released in Japan. And this spot was previously held for 20 years. Can you guess which movie held that spot? Akira? 
No, it was Studio Ghibli's Spirited Away. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes way more sense than Akira. <laughs> <laughs> um, and apparently it's the high, again, it's the highest grossing film of all time in Japan, the highest grossing anime film, and the highest grossing Japanese film of all time, which is just, just nuts how much anime has taken over, I guess, the world <laughs> and, you know, like, and like mainstream pop culture as well. So wait, we had to wait a full year before the U.S. release? Was it, has it really been that long? I thought the the movie came out like winter, like end of 2021 or maybe like early fall or well, something. Yeah, actually, know. yeah. It, it released in Japan on October 16th, 2020. So I guess it hasn't been a full year. Like six I'm, months. Yeah. I think the way I'm thinking of it is the trailers for this movie came out right around the start of the pandemic. But Yeah. And it was, was it delayed at all? Because of the situation, um, that I'm not too sure of. I'm again, I'm just kind of glossing over the Wikipedia page. Um, yeah, so I'm pretty sure the film was supposed to be released simultaneously with Japan. I'm here in the states, um, but again, because of the situation with COVID, they had to delay it until it was the right time for. Uh, theaters here in the states to start opening up um but yeah obviously it's still been a long time waiting for us fans over here on um the western or in the western hemisphere um and yeah, in the end it definitely delivered i would say yeah it was a good movie i really really enjoyed it um let's okay so i want to do something really quick something slightly different let's talk briefly about our overall thoughts but then i want to ask a specific question to kind of bring things full circle that'll make more sense when i actually ask my question but what were your like high level like just a few sentences thoughts on the movie itself i think you know great is a word that we've we've used often on our podcast i'm trying to think of something that Something else that's synonymous with great that isn't so plain. Bring okay, let's let's, <laughs> let's get a um a thesaurus here. Yeah, let me look up a thesaurus on my side and see if there's a better word for me to describe my feelings about this movie. Great. The first thing that comes up is big. This was a big <laughs> movie. <laughs> considerable. This was a considerable movie. Because <laughs> I wouldn't say that the movie was fantastic, but you know it. What is this word? Accomplished? It's this movie is adept. <laughs> adept. Know. Adept. Accomplished. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm using that in the right terms, but yeah, the movie was what I liked about it is as a lot of people pointed out, it is a canon continuation of what happens in the first season. It's canon. Yes, it's finally canon. It's not like my hero where it finds this weird niche spot to include a story that ends up not having any impact moving forward fucking retconning in the last like five minutes of the movie <laughs> right um but yeah this one it's the true story of what happens after the cliffhanger of season one which yeah i really appreciated because it's it we're not i guess we're not wasting our time by watching it um as courtney mentioned before the visuals and the sound effects um were just amazing and I think that's just a testament to how much, I don't know how you pronounce it. Is it UFO table or UFO table? I think people say UFO table, Okay, but I could be wrong. Okay, yeah. and let me let me just interject because my question was going to be, what 
was you have to pick one each because we'll we'll dive into everything you know throughout this podcast episode but mm-hmm. one each what was your favorite part no let me, let me rephrase this what do you feel was the strongest part of the movie and what do you feel was the weakest part of the movie okay that's an interesting question I feel so like... not necessarily your favorite right mm-hmm. but like strongest and weakest yeah um i would say the strongest part of the movie was the dream sequence for Tanjiro where he realizes that he's stuck in a dream and you know he's confronted with having to say goodbye to his family one more time um and he like reaffirms that he's like as much as he misses his family he knows that they are the reason that he fights onward especially in you know saving Nezko and I think the intention I don't recall this. I'd probably, I'd have to probably re-listen to our podcast. Um, the intention is for him to find a cure for Nesco's like demon side. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so getting to see Tanjiro uh, again reaffirm his resolve in that in that task, while again acknowledging the family that's passed before him, was a very very strong moment in the movie. I would say that the weakest part of the movie was that. I call it the quote-unquote epilogue where it kind of shoot in this battle between uh, Rengoku, the Flame Hashira, and um, Akaza, who was one of the upper 12 Kazuki. Which is interesting because they, did they even say his name? Um, like, they may have. It just went over my head. But did they even say his name or did they even say the other villain's name in the film? I don't think they mentioned the first villain's name at all. Which is weird, right? Yeah, um, and I think someone briefly, I don't know if it was Tanjiro or another character, briefly mentions Akaza's name um, before he faces off against Rengoku. But that part just felt like it was, again, just added on, and it really kind of messed up. I felt like it messed up the pacing of the rest of the movie, um, and it was just there to kind of bring closure to Rengoku's story. Spoiler alert, he dies. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, but I think that like that was probably the one of the bigger flaws of the movie um, besides. But everything else was, was pretty great. Um, but what were your thoughts? So my overall thoughts was that this movie was very, very good. But it was not perfect. Um, I think that... And I don't think it's the movie's fault. I just think it's the cut of the manga that they chose to make into a movie. Um, because I was reading that this movie stuck pretty damn close to the uh, to the manga. So I'm just thinking, you know, had they chosen a different arc to make a movie out of, it probably would have been much closer to, um, you know, amazing, like, masterpiece. Like, I, I like to use, um, for anyone who's on Mal, I like to use their, their rating system when you get to 9 and 10 because 10 is a masterpiece. Like, it is perfection and this is not a masterpiece it's not Mm -hmm. perfection but i think they had all the right elements all they had the right formula to make a masterpiece had again they chosen a different cut of the manga different arc from the manga because this arc i just felt like was it was very good but it just wasn't you know a phenomenal mind-blowing arc like can you imagine if they had um i'm gonna butcher this was it rui rui's a spider demon um he was a he was a lower... Yeah, he was one of demon. the lower Kizuki or whatever. Yeah, Kizuki. Like, can you imagine if they took that whole, like, the forest part of it, um, that whole arc, and made mm-hmm. that into the movie? I felt that was stronger 
than Mugen Train, than that arc. Um, so I just think if they had chosen a different arc, it would have been a more impactful movie. Now, with that said, obviously, Rengoku is phenomenal. His death is very emotional. Um, and I'm not taking away from that by any means. In terms of what I felt was the strongest and the weakest parts of the movie, mine are kind of more broad than yours. I would say strongest part of the movie, visuals by mm-hmm. far. I mean, Demon Slayer season one was already incredibly stunning, and I didn't think it could get any more amazing. And then UFO Table just proved me wrong with this movie. They put their hearts and souls into the visuals and the fight scenes in this movie. I was blown away. And I kind of like that it still somewhat sticks to the style of the show because I know sometimes with um, anime movies, they go for a style and animation that slightly differs and it makes it look more cinematic. Not to get me, don't get me wrong, like this movie still looked cinematic, but at the same time, it still kind of steeped you within the visuals of the world within the television series. You know what I mean? I agree. I loved that I felt like I was just watching a literal continuation of the anime, which is basically what this is, considering that it's canon. You just get in a different format, which is Mm -hmm. a two-hour movie versus a 25-minute episode. And I know some people feel very different about that, that they would rather feel like they are actually seeing a movie versus just a continuation of the anime. I'm on the opposite end. Like I think about the Inuyasha movies, which... You know, people argue back and forth, like, whether or not they're actually canon. That aside, they look so different from the show. I mean, they have a different art style where I don't even feel like I'm watching Inuyasha. Um, again, some people really liked that. I would have preferred that they kept to the exa- the same visuals and that same feel of Inuyasha so that I could feel like I'm just watching more of the anime that I love. So I agree. I think them pretty much being on point with everything that we saw in the anime, just enhancing it and making it more of like a feast for your eyes for this movie. That was such a smart decision. Now on the flip side, I felt the weakest part of this movie. And again, I'm talking broad here, um, was the plot. And I'm not saying the plot is bad. Again, don't get me wrong. It was, um, it was a great arc and Rengoku, Rengoku's story was very, very powerful, but I just felt overall the plot was, the weakest part for the reason i said earlier like yeah. it was just the arc that they chose um and i'm sure if they put in all this effort and had like another movie and, and chose a different arc that was more i don't know spectacular an arc that was more interesting then i think this would be much closer to a 10 out of 10 masterpiece so those are my answers and we can we can jump into the gritty details about all of that. And I there's plenty. And now I'm, it's kind of weird ending on the weakest part. There's plenty of things I want to praise about this movie, but also things that I do want to be pretty honest about. So I am excited to talk about this. Yeah, so I guess the way that we'll approach this, I know usually we have a format of going through the synopsis and then we'll have a discussion. Um, since this is a movie, I think we will, what we'll do is we'll kind of do a synopsis and then kind of, stop along the way to kind of gather our thoughts and provide more discussion as the summary moves along. There's like a lot that happens in this movie, but also not a lot that happens. Like I it, think we always say that. I know, right? <laughs> With like, a lot of, especially like JoJo episodes <laughs> or um, some of the Attack on Titan ones. It's pretty impressive how anime can pack so much into like what's literally like a 10 minute sequence, you know, by real life time standards. Mm-hmm. And I will say before we jump into the synopsis, I do want to say one more thing. Um, the movie felt long. And I think that that's because one major fight wraps up and then suddenly another one starts. Um, 
But even before that, like just kind of everything leading up to the climax with Enmu, like it just it it felt long because they were packing like so much stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to describe it. Like the pacing just was very not bad, but it was just odd to me, and I just felt like like man, this movie feels more like four hours than two hours, and not in the good way either. Did you feel that way about it, or is it just me? I thought the movie felt like lengthwise it felt fine so the running time is 117 minutes which is just under two hours and maybe it's just because it kind of moves you from one arc to the next pretty rapidly that you really don't notice um how much time has passed um the only thing the only thing i thought that dragged was again the the epilogue with uh rengoku and akaza but everything else like I felt immediate, I felt pretty absorbed in in the scenes. See, that's interesting because I felt the opposite. I felt like the Akaza Rengoku fight was like the most fast paced part of the movie because he mm. shows up. I mean, to be fair, he shows up and then like the fight ends like five minutes later. But I felt like that maybe just because that fight to me was the more interesting of the two big fights in this film. So I was more engulfed. I was like, okay, this is cool. Um, it just kind of was a downer that he was the 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 tacked on fight at the end of mm-hmm. the the movie, um, but maybe it's just everything kind of leading up to the fight with Enmu. Like, there's a lot that happens before Tanjiro actually has like the big climactic fight with Enmu, which that in of itself was a weird fight. Mm-hmm. I guess yeah, the Enmu fight where he becomes the train that kind of, that dragged on a little bit, especially when they were trying to find like his neighbor's neck or whatever. But I think with me the fight with Rengoku and Kaza dragged a bit. Like, visually, it was great because it showcased each of their, like, martial arts skills. But, again, it just felt tacked on at the end. So, by the by this part of the movie, I was like, why isn't this movie resolved yet? And, we're, again, we're just watching this fight. That's It's not inconsequential, but it just doesn't fit with, you know, the rest of the movie. Yeah, I, I think... Overall, I think if they had shifted and given us like 50% of the movie was Enmu and 50% was Akaza, but also just like not only having half the movie be a fight between yeah. Akaza and, and Rengoku, don't get me wrong, um, that would have been a better way to kind of distribute the the main, the two basically main arcs of right. the movie. Um, but yeah, I don't know, just, yeah, th- that was a, a very, very, very interesting choice um, to have Akaza kind of just show up at the end and then literally rip Rengoku a new one. <laughs> right, like you're saying, if they kind of weaved him into the rest of the, the plot threads, like, you know, maybe Akaza's watching from a distance, or we like, we don't know it's him, but like, we see that someone's overseeing this operation, I guess, that Enmu is undertaking. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of like, here he is, there they fight, and now it's done. And it's kind of, again, that's what, you know, UFO tables probably left to deal with because they're trying to stick so closely to the manga. So this is kind of one of those situations where it's like, do you deviate from the manga to, you know, maybe clean up some of the issues that the manga had with the pacing? If manga readers even found that pacing to be odd, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, Or do you stick true to the manga knowing that the pacing is going to ultimately be odd for the movie? But anyway, that was just my two cents before we actually dive into the synopsis because it's just going to come up, I feel like, as we talk about the movie, just the the pacing of everything overall. Yeah. So let's go ahead and just jump right into, again, the synopsis and discussion for Demon Slayer Kimitsu no Yaiba, the movie Mugen Train. 
Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba the movie Mugen Train is a Japanese animated dark fantasy period action film based on the shonen manga series by Koyoharu Gotoge and produced by UFO Table. Released in the US on April 23rd, 2021, the film serves as a direct sequel to the first season of the television series. The film begins with the master of the Demon Slayers taking a brisk walk with his wife through a cemetery filled with diseased Demon Slayers demonstrating the toll that Muzan Jackson's antics have taken on his core. And I just want to point out from the very get-go, the animation quality of the first shot. Um, it's just showing the canopy of the trees um, in the cemetery. And you can actually see the leaves rustling on the trees, which I thought was a very, very nice attention to detail. Um, and that kind of makes you know like this, film is rolling on a film product or like this anime is now rolling on a film production budget so continuing onwards elsewhere the demon slaying quartet of tanjiro nezuko zenitsu and inosuke board the train to muzan and rendezvous with an eccentric rengoku the flame hashira hashira to investigate the string of deaths by demon on the train line the group seemingly takes down the supposed demon threat and the credits roll psych Turns out they were knocked the fuck out to sleep thanks to the blood demon art of Enmu, one of the 12 Kazuki haunting the train who instructs four of its insomniatic passengers to take inspiration from Christopher Nolan's Inception by infiltrating the demon slayer's dreams to kill them by destroying their spiritual core. Within Tanjiro's fantasy of reuniting with his murdered family, he realizes that he is within a dream and wakes up by an anheroing himself after his father's specter gives him a tutorial tip. Nesco begins her five-minute film cameo by severing the four assassins' rope tethers to the slayers and attempting to awaken them. Tanjiro knocks out all but one of the assassins, the Levi lookalike, suffering from tuberculosis, who was so touched by Tanjiro's spiritual core that he decided to quit his evil ways and become Zeke Yeager's worst nightmare. And I kind of want to discuss this Inception portion of the movie, which was a little bit odd, but I mean, I get how... This was conceived by an Enmo's power. Yeah. So okay. Um, with the very beginning of the movie, um, I fell in love with Rengoku immediately with the mm -hmm. whole Umai part. Like it was just so weird. <laughs> like I don't, I don't know. Like it just seemed really dumb on the surface, but it was super endearing. I have no clue why. But it was. And I'm like, this guy's cool. I'm all on board with Rengoku. And I like just like how he's just smiling the whole time. And he, as he's having a conversation with Tanjiro, he's not even looking at him. He's just looking straight ahead <laughs> and say like, or I think Tanjiro was first asking him about like the powers of, like, or like the flame breathing style. And if it's synonymous with the uh, Hinokami Kagura, um, his family's or his father's dance. Um, and, you know, I think Rengoku tells him, no, I don't know anything about that. He just <laughs> says it so, like, happy-go-luckily that it, you kind of question, like, how is this guy one of the however many Hashira there are, like, the, the top of the demon slang I think there's nine, for. right? I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, probably nine. But, like, you wonder, like, how is this guy um, one of the top tier? And he acts so aloof. Yeah, and I, I think that that's um, both, like, a strong part, but also, like, a... A miss opportunity in this movie because I I got sucked into Rengoku seeing his aloof personality, but then you get like the transition into like his his Hashira personality, his true mm -hmm. abilities, 
um, and what he's capable of. And while he still is kind of like aloof, he's the rest of the movie, like he's just serious and on point the whole time. I would have loved to have seen more of the aloof goofiness be infused in some of these moments. And it's not like he completely changes personality. There are still some funny moments with him later on. Um, but once we get the backstory for him through his dream, I feel like there's a very big tone shift for Rengoku where they focus much more on his abilities as a Hashira versus like his true personality. And this is the only time we're going to see Rengoku, mm -hmm. at least like in current time or present time. So I just wish they had infused more of that. Yeah, because you also just barely see him in the first season. Like I know there's the episode where they introduce all the Hashira and I think there's a brief scene where it shows that he leaves for this mission. Um, but I think yeah, the movie where it kind of falters is trying to get us as the audience to really connect with Rengoku's character. Um, I mean, it's nice to get this little like snippet of humor at the beginning. Um, and then later on, we do get that dream sequence where it's him trying to appease his father by telling him that he's become a Hashira. And then we see that he's like, kind of encouraging his younger brother to like be true to himself um and then i think at the very end where he has that flashback of his mother but it's hard to kind of squeeze all of that um character development and i guess create that empathy for the audience to or empathize with rengoku when you only have two hours to do it um, as opposed to a tv show where you can kind of build that up across multiple episodes yeah i agree and I'll, I'll bring this up again when we talk about his death um because i i want to talk about that more from the focus of the main trio um so yeah i'm glad that you brought that up like it is difficult to be introduced to a character and see their end all in a two-hour span mm -hmm. and then try to be emotionally invested in them as an audience member through that two hours yeah um with that said let's Let's talk about each of the dream sequences. Um, who do you want to start with? Do you want to start with from the dumbest <laughs> to the most emotional? <laughs> well, then who, who is the dumbest then? I think um, we know it's Inosuke and Zenitsu. But <laughs> yeah, who's the dumbest? I would say Inosuke's was the dumbest because his, I wrote here, it was basically like a Looney Tunes segment <laughs> because it's like we see that he has such a huge fascination for... I think he thinks the train's like a moving creature. And so that's incorporated in the dream where it ends up like it being this monster that um, he has to attack. And I like how in the dream it, it shows that he is actually the leader of the group and that um, Tanjiro and Zanitsu are these like doofus characters that are following <laughs> him. And for some reason, Nezuko's in like has bunny ears and has this weird gait as she's walking behind him. But I like that he, he's the champion, or he sees himself as the champion in his dream. Yeah, so overall, Inosuke really blew me away, this movie. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've said this before in a, another podcast episode. I think it was the Jujutsu Kaisen um, review part two that we had, where you know a lot of anime has like a main trio, right? Like That's a pretty big anime trope. And I find myself always loving all of the main trio but always having one that's i'm like slightly less excited by it's not to say i don't like the character it's just if you know they, they don't hit me as hard as the other two so for example with attack on titan i love Eren, i love mikasa i like armin but i don't mm -hmm. love armin um in this case with 
Demon Slayer. I love, love Zenitsu. He's my favorite. I love Tanjiro and I like Inosuke. But now after seeing Inosuke on, throughout this movie, he's very much transitioned from like to love. I I fell in love with Inosuke throughout this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as his actual dream goes, um, I think that his, like everyone else's, was perfect for his personality. It was, I found these dreams to really not give us anything new about the characters. It just reinforced what we already know about them Mm -hmm. and really emphasized their personalities and their character traits. So it made perfect sense that Inosuke's was in a cave trying to hunt down the demon train, which he was right about (laughs) the whole time, by the way. Yeah, he's the (laughs) smartest character in the movie. Yeah, honestly, he kind of was. And that he found found himself to be the leader of the group, even though everyone would think the complete opposite. Well, maybe him more so than Zenitsu. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was just great. I I loved everything about his dream sequence. And when the, I don't know what you'd call him, Enmu's henchman, the sick dying chick, when she is trying to find her way into his subconscious and his subconscious is still a continuation of the gross, dark, creepy cave, like... Her confusion and her being chased down by him was just so funny. It was so great. Mm -hmm. And then we move on to Zenitsu's dream sequence. And this was just more comic relief. I believe it was him. Like they were, he was running through a field of, I don't know if, were there trees or like, yeah, it was almost like an orchard or something. Oh, yeah, like an orchard. And it turns out it's just like a romantic comedy sequence between him and Nesco, and Nesco can actually speak in this part. So I think besides Tanjiro's dream being about you know being back with his family, Zenitsu's dream was probably one of the most on point for all of the characters mm. because that literally is all he wants is just to be with Nesco and just like be happy and frolic around with no demons, nothing scary, you know, threatening him. It was just perfect for my boy Zenitsu. <laughs> yeah, get nice comic relief um, in this movie from his side. And when it comes to his subconscious, I thought it was super funny that it, his subconscious is black. It's just blank space. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, I took it as like, there's nothing in this man's brain. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and then I forgot which of the assassins were, um, it was one of, or it was the other male one right yeah um who was in his subconscious and you know it goes from this romantic comedy to this almost horror film vibe when the the assassin tries to to kill off his spiritual core because you see glimpses of zenitsu behind him in the darkness coming up to him and he has like this really sallow look on his face like shrunken shrunken cheeks and he's holding hedge clippers um (laughs) which is kind of strange i thought it was kind of reminiscent of that old clock tower video game. Um, Hell yeah. On Nintendo, you have the creepy guy with the hedge clippers. <laughs> I thought that was the vibe they were going for. But this he just ends up attacking this assassin because he thinks he's after Nezuko, which is just it, funny. I guess it, that's the more extreme part of his his dedication to Tanjiro's sister. I found it weird, though, that both Inosuke and Zenitsu found their way into their subconscious. First of all, they they knew that someone was in their dream. Mm-hmm. And then second of all, they made their way into the subconscious with that assassin when both Rengoku and Tanjiro, who are you know phenomenally stronger than them, um, were not able to do that. They had no clue that... Well, besides Rengoku choking that girl, which we'll talk about. Um, besides Rengoku, like 
in the real world being triggered. He mm-hmm. never saw anything about those two pieces, and neither did Tanjiro. So that was that was interesting that the two um, less intelligent characters actually <laughs> made their way to the subconscious and found their assassins. Yeah, that that, that is kind of odd thinking about it. Um, or maybe they're just smarter than we think. Yeah, well, <laughs> after seeing Inosuke in this movie, I am very pleasantly surprised by his level of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not intelligence, but intuition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think my favorite dream by far was, was Zenitsu. It was great for him. Um, should we talk about Rengoku or Tanjiro next? We can talk about Rengoku. I know we briefly touched upon it previously, but... I thought it was um, an interesting dream sequence because everyone else's was their ideal situation. But Ren Goku's, I mean, was that really his ideal situation? That was more of a mm-hmm. memory than a dream sequence, right? Yeah, especially because it starts off with, again, he wants to bring the good news of him being a Hashira to his dad and his dad doesn't really respond positively to it. I think it seems the- like his dad's like suffering from depression, maybe. Yeah, or he's just... Again, becomes so cynical about his worldviews. I guess the happier portion, again, is um, Rengoku connecting with his brother and, like I said, kind of encouraging his brother to be true to himself. And, you know, they they go off and have a a brotherly time while the assassin attacks his subconscious, which is apparently just on fire. (laughs) (laughs) So... Yeah, I don't know. Something about the the choice here, it just made it feel like the dream sequences were more of a plot device to find a way to give us Rengoku's backstory. Yeah. Because again, like everyone else had idealized situations or scenarios and his was literally just a memory where we get introduced to his father, we get introduced to his brother, um, and we get more of a serious side of Rengoku. Um so yeah, I don't know. It just felt like an odd choice. I would have rather them have been consistent and given Rengoku an ideal situation um, where maybe like Tanjiro, he somehow kind of figures out something's not right. Because as we see during this dream sequence, his battle skills, his intuition, um, his abilities, whatever the word is, mm-hmm. are sharp enough where even though his dream is not causing him to be triggered by anything in the real world he still knows that he's in danger and he chokes that girl out for what feels like a full fucking 10 minutes and no one is phased by the fact that she (laughs) is getting choked the fuck out by rengoku and yeah you got the vein bulges popping out of his head as he's choking or even his hands as he's choking her out yeah and like mind you nezuko wakes up and sees this and like doesn't even bat an eye and then when she wakes tanjiro up which i know i'm skipping ahead a little bit when she wakes tanjiro up he also sees it and he's kind of like oh (laughs) (laughs) okay well i have other things to worry about he has his friends to worry about like ren goku can he's fine on his own yeah (laughs) and kind of going back to your mention of his dream sequence kind of being a plot device i think it this even comes up um in the later half of the movie or the concluding half of the movie where um, when Goku instructs Tanjiro to, to find or go to the Kyojuro household or his residence um, to f- see if he can learn more about his father's Hinokami Kagura dance and how that he can kind of, uh, what is it, master that power, I yeah. suppose. Um, so yeah, I think this they put this in just to kind of adjust that and it just makes me wonder, like, is this something that we're going to see in season two? Like if or when Tanjiro ends up visiting Rengoku's household and along those lines, are we going to learn what caused Rengoku's father to be so cynical? Because I believe 
the movie mentions that he was part of the Demon Slayer Corps. He was a Hashira as well. Oh, he was. I believe. Yeah, so I, I'm wondering if there's going to be a, a, an arc where like Tanjiro gets mentorship, tries to get mentorship from his father, and then we learn like why he get lost fate in like the demon slaying cause oh 100 i i'm sure we'll i think you're totally on, uh, on point with that we're, we're definitely gonna get some sort of arc where tanjiro goes to their house he delivers the news or at least more details about rengoku's final battle and what he said you know he wanted tanjiro to tell his family or his brother and his father um and i'm sure like again it's as we mentioned earlier it's difficult because we're introduced to and say goodbye to rengoku all in you know, a two hour movie mm-hmm. and it feels like it's for no reason, but there will be a reason. We just have to be patient and wait till Tanjiro makes it to his family's house. Yeah. And I guess we will save the best for last with Tanjiro's dream sequence, which again is just an alternate reality where his murdered family ends up living. What did you think of that first shot when he sees his younger siblings and he runs over to them and cries and gives them a hug. I loved it. And I was surprised that we were getting such heavy feels so early into the movie. I mean, the feels were consistent, like more so than the TV show, the TV show, the more so than season one of the anime, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of feels in season one, but not as consistently as we got them in this movie. Like it was just like action and feels the whole time. Um, so I was surprised like that early on we were getting, you know, Tanjiro crying, although he does cry a lot, (laughs) um, but it was very, very sweet and I, I really liked it. I do want to say, so really quick, um, backtracking, backtracking just a little bit. Enmu does acknowledge at one point when he's facing off with Tanjiro that he fed them, you know, pleasant dreams. Like he's saying like, Mm -hmm. wouldn't you want to die in this, you know, pleasant dream, blah, blah, blah. So again, it's like, why was Rengoku's not an idealized situation why was it just a memory and albeit a an unpleasant memory um if enmu was seeking out or creating these ideal situations because tanjiro's is literally the only thing that he wants and that's to be with his family again mm-hmm. like his was by far i mean it was the, the only heartbreaking one um because any sues and inosuke's were not emotional by any means um so yeah i just i don't know that just makes me think a little bit further about the choice with rengoku's but anyway back to tanjiro's what did you think about that initial reunion i mean when we watched the trailers for the movie this part was a little bit spoiled because right? yeah i think they they showed the shot of tanjiro running to his siblings but what's interesting is that you see tanjiro in his um the way he appears in the very first episode of season one, where it's his hair tied up and he has that, um, like a burlap sack behind or on his back, um, so it kind of shows you that you know this is this is not necessarily in the present day. Um, this is again we're in a dream sequence, but it, you know it's very touching that he does have this kind of moment of peace amidst all of the violence that he's had to endure. Um, in his path to becoming a demon slayer and I guess eventually to becoming a Hashira. Um, and it's it's stuff that's not very consequential. It's just him enjoying time with his family, which as minuscule as that sounds, are, are it's something that he wished he could have continued living for. Um, and then 
I thought it was the weirdest thing about this sequence um, is that it's so convenient that Tanjiro's dad shows up for that hot minute. Yeah, that was super weird. Yeah. <laughs> he just like fl- literally flies in. He's like mm-hmm. floating and he's like, what did he say? Something like, I don't even like, remember. <laughs> he just says like, there's, there's a way you can use your sword. Yeah, um, he just like drops this weird bomb on him like... <laughs> I don't know. If I were Tanjo, mm-hmm. I'd be like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, like, why wouldn't you just tell him straight up, like, cut your head off and you'll get out of this dream? Why do you have to be so, like, ambiguous or ambivalent? Yeah, and why show up that way? Like, why mm-hmm. wouldn't it? I mean, if it's his ideal situation, wouldn't his father be there anyway, alive? Mm-hmm. So, like, wouldn't his father maybe, I don't know, like, a, like an alternate way to handle that could be his father is alive, but then... As Tanjiro starts to realize what's going on, his father, you know, walks up to him and says whatever it was that he said to him in the yeah. movie. And then it clicks with Tanjiro. Or Tanjiro in the water should be the one to tell him, dude, kill yourself because you're right. in a dream right now. <laughs> Take this mm-hmm. dagger and kill yourself <laughs> for anyone who knows that JoJo reference. Yeah, I know I kind of went a bit forward there with Tanjiro's dad's appearance. But yeah, that's where Tanjiro realizes that he is in the dream when his actual reflection um shows up in the stream and then that snaps him out of it and i think it's also nezko um also activates uh that realization where in the real world she like hits her head on tanjiro and starts bleeding yeah and then i think tanjiro picks up the scent of her blood is that right yeah so he knows that there's something not right um and everything after that sequence of where he comes to his senses and seeing him have to leave his family, I think that that was like the most heart wrenching part of this movie. And normally, I don't like cry in movies. I'll just get pretty teary eyed. <laughs> um, I'm looking at you, Avengers Endgame. <laughs> um, but this one too, like you'll see all of the like pain on Tanjiro's face, knowing that he has to leave his family again, and that he will never get to experience this reality of reuniting with them but i like that he knows that this is something that he like he has something that he has to live for um and this will kind of tie in with what happens at the end of the movie between the fight or between akaza and rengoku in their fight because akaza is trying to persuade rengoku to become a demon like to live in immortality where like Rengoku prefers like human nature where you live for every moment with the time that you have. And, you know, with Tanjiro saying that he has something to live for with his murdered family, I think that's what helps see what sets humans apart from the demons that they're trying to slay. I agree. I love that Tanjiro said, like, I can't stay here because literally right now there are people who need me and they're in danger like Mm -hmm. he it wasn't only the fact that he's trying to get revenge for his family and kill kibutsuji and save people from demons but it's like literally right now in this moment he's so aware that his friends are in danger um and that something's going on in the real world that he knows he just needs to walk away and he doesn't even look back at his family Mm -hmm. i think i agree i think this was one of the most emotional parts of the movie and him not even looking back at his family even as his youngest brother is running after him crying and begging him to stay that was so so intense Mm -hmm. and i think it shows how much resolve um and how much drive tanjiro has to not even look back like he knows it's not real no matter how real it feels 
Um, he can't even just give them one last look. And that's, you know, intentional. And I think there's a lot in this movie that sh- that really kind of hammers home the resolve that Tanjiro has, most notably committing suicide over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, even despite him not being able to look back, like he still assures them like in his thoughts that like he says you'll always be in my heart. And I was like, oh man, that's so like that's so heart wrenching. Like knowing that his family's behind him and he knows that it's not real, but still carrying on their legacy with him. Um, it just makes Tanjiro such a wholesome protagonist. Yeah. Um, and I do have to to also call out that I, I too got very choked up at this part and Rengoku's death. And those, those are the two moments that I actually kind of made me swell up a little bit with some some tears. I didn't actually cry. I always kind of say this um, whenever I watch something very emotional. The only thing ever in my life that I watched that made me cry was Kalenad season two. That's it. <laughs> and if for anyone that's watched that, you know why. Um, but no, this, this got me. Well, yeah, you'll have to watch it then. <laughs> no or don't thing. watch it no if you don't want to cry. Um, but yeah, that is the only thing in my entire life that's ever made me cry, like, you know, TV or movie or video game wise. Um, but this got me very close. It was just, uh, it was yeah. like heartbreaking. Poor Tanjiro. And I think what made it even worse, like it almost set me on the verge of tears is throughout or at the final part of this dream sequence we hear motifs from the song kamado tanjiro no uta which i believe translates to like the song of tanjiro yep um and this is like the the haunting song that plays during tanjiro's pivotal battle against rui that we mentioned before in season one um you know again it's such a a sad but motivating melody and I'm very glad that they included that for this part in this movie because it just symbolizes Tanjiro's love for not only Nezuko, but for, again, his family in general. And I, this is like a, a critique of the My Hero Heroes Rising movie. Like, they could have totally done this with You Say Run because, again, that, that theme in My Hero Academia is such a pivotal piece of music as well. But the way they used it in the second movie for My Hero, it was a very cheap shoe-in. Like, it was just a slowed-down ballad with this singer who sings over the melody. But I think, like, them using Kamado Tanjiro no Uta at this point, it just gave the scene a lot more emotional weight as a musical reminder of why Tanjiro continues to fight. So we've talked about the subcon- subconsciouses subconsciouses subconscious the collective subconscious the selective selective the collect- collective, the collective. <laughs> subconscious of all the characters so far um tanjiro's was i mean it just made sense like it, mm-hmm. it was almost overly dramatic how pure his soul is but i think we needed that in that moment i don't know what those little sprites were that was kind of weird i could probably could yeah, have yeah. done without the sprites but the fact that they like guided him the levi discount levi um directly to his core what do they call it spiritual yeah, core yeah spiritual core um it was just like i i think that was that was very much a tanjiro thing mm-hmm. right like yeah that means he has to die but he's doing it in service of somebody who really needs something this person who has tuberculosis like yeah. okay if you're gonna kill me you, you can go ahead and do that in fact i'll lead you to my spiritual core like that's very much a tanjiro thing yeah it just like symbolizes the purity of his soul yeah and you know his willingness to always 
be there for others. And honestly, as much as I love the dream sequences for everyone, it, it is the subconscious part, mm-hmm. <laughs> subconsciouses that I thought were the best part of this whole section of the movie. Because again, the, the dream sequences are an idealized situation or, or something that the characters desire minus Ren Goku's, but it's the subconscious that actually shows us the true essence of who these characters are. Again, mm-hmm. you have Inosuke, who's is like a dark, scary cave because he's just all about like fighting and grittiness and and I don't know being animalistic. Um, Zenitsu is, is blank space because yes, he's, he's fucking dumb, and I love him. <laughs> uh, Ren Goku's is fire because. He sets his own heart ablaze. He sets others' hearts ablaze, as he says multiple times in this movie. And he just is a true good person. Um, And then you have Tanjiro's, which is just warmth and light and sunshine and just purity. Because that is, as cliche as that may be, that's something that I love about Tanjiro's character is that they stick to that. Like, yes, it's... It's easy to say, oh, he's a perfect character. He's so good, nothing phases him. But they actually deliver on that so well in Demon Slayer. And I'm really glad they continued to deliver on that through his subconscious. Yeah, the only thing about the uh, Tanjiro's subconscious, or maybe this is after the fact. Um, so the, the kid that was supposed to kill him like has this change of heart, right? Um, and you know Tanjiro, he's the only one of the four of them that Tanju doesn't knock out. Um, yeah. Like, what happens to this kid afterwards? I don't know, because the whole Enmu dream thing was like a hot minute, and then they got rid yeah. of it, which I'll, I definitely want to talk about when we get to, to Enmu. Because I, I don't know if, like, Enmu has the ability to sense when, like, their missions haven't gone um, as planned. He and must have, because he yeah. was commenting the entire time mm-hmm. about what was going on like oh they're in their deep sleep now and oh they must be having a hard time killing them because it's been a while or whatever like he he has some level of awareness yeah but again for the kid like he just walks scot-free um of course he has this debilitating disease of tuberculosis so Mm -hmm. we never see what or maybe we will in season two i don't know um but yeah we never see the fate of this kid by the end of the movie um i think all the passengers ended up surviving the train crash but i don't know if and off them because they didn't do the job right yeah the, i have a lot to say <laughs> about that which maybe this is a good time to move forward in the synopsis so mm-hmm. that we can kind of talk a little bit more about that yeah so jumping back into the synopsis tanjiro goes on to face enmu atop the train and beheads him but in true anime scheming fashion we learn that enmu took a cue from thomas the tank engine and has become the entire fucking train once the other slayers wake up, Rengoku instructs Tanjiro and Inosuke to strike at the train's quote-unquote neck, while he, Zenitsu, and Nezuko protect the train passengers. In spectacular CGI fashion, the redhead and the boarhead take down Enmu's crazy train to Muzan, although Tanjiro is stabbed by the blackmailed train conductor in the process. One thing I want to mention here is, I think, during the fight, Enmu his last trump card of submerging Tanjiro in this nightmare sequence where you see his family covered in blood, blaming him for their, for blaming Tanjiro for their deaths was such a dick move. Yeah. And I know, and will mention like he likes to torment his, his victims by putting them into these nightmare sequences before he finally kills them. But the one thing I love about this scene is that, you know, Tanjiro sees his murdered family 
and it's it's a horrific and traumatic scene but i feel like with typical anime protagonists you would kind of see them become like conflicted or or like shut down in this moment but what i love about tanjiro is that he isn't like a lot of anime protagonists and especially in this scene he doesn't cower or feel any sort of immense guilt he he acknowledges that enmu is just using his family against him and he declares to him that they would never say such things to him before he slices his head off i like i thought that was a very strong character moment for tanjiro uh, yes he's yeah, he's not bending to this this uh to this antagonist's will that's a really good point i didn't even think about that like that is an awesome moment of character development for tanjiro and i think too it's like Enmu can show him all sorts of terrible imagery at the end of the day, but nothing will ever be as horrific as Tanjiro actually seeing that scene in person. Like, mm-hmm. he's already been through the highest level of torment by actually walking up to his home and seeing his family slaughtered. Right. So nothing will ever feel as terrible as that, even as Enmu's trying to, you know, fuck up his head by having his half-dead family talk back to him and, mm-hmm. and make him feel or try to make him feel that guilt. So that, that's a that's a fantastic point. Um, that just shows, again, it's another moment of showing Tanjiro's resol- resolve. And I do want to say, kind of to add to that, again, like they show us that Tanjiro is this perfect person, but he's not a perfect character mm-hmm. because skill-wise, he's still growing. I mean, how many times does he cry out of frustration in this movie or I think at one point he he says something like, you know, I always feel like there's these immense walls in front of me and everyone's fighting on the other side and I can't reach them or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so I love that he's just not this perfect character that also is perfectly skilled as we see in this movie and as we saw in season one when he literally took one to two years to train just to be good enough to go out to test for the Demon Slayers. Um, they make him feel realistic. Like, yeah, he's... You, your your personality can be fantastic, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be a perfect skilled fighter right out of the gate. And so, yeah, we get more of that in, in this movie. Mm-hmm. So let's break down this Enmu fight, this Enmu arc as a whole, because I, I have a lot of things to say about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I feel like he in general didn't live up to the hype. But before we do that, oh my God. <laughs> Um, before we do that, though, um, before we do that, is there anything that you wanted to mention about kind of this whole portion of the movie before we actually dive into like the, the nitty gritty? Yeah, I just wanted to kind of comment on the highs and lows of the animation quality of this particular battle between um, Enmu and Tanjiro. Uh, I thought the initial fight where it's them in their, I guess, uh, person forms was fantastic and what i like the most about the animation in this movie um, is that the characters were still 2d animated i don't think they used any instance of rotoscoping but regardless they were animated flawlessly and it, it still looked seamless and you know you have the the effects of tanjiro using his different concentration breathing forms um and i think enmu had his own tricks up his sleeve as well but getting that all on screen it was almost on par with again the breathtaking visuals of that Tanjiro versus Ui fight that we saw in season one so I like again that they I think the term is like Sakuga right? Sakuga yeah like th- those sequences 
where it's just so much anime and special or not special but like these visual effects in your face but it it just looks like a very glorified battle painting and it was just a pleasure to watch um, and a treat for my eyes yeah this Enmu fight not the like the train fight but this yeah, i'll get into that <laughs> yeah this Enmu fight the first one and the rengoku akaza is that his name mm-hmm. um akaza fight were just oh my god visually spectacular mm-hmm. i think i think those two fights were the height the peak of the visuals in this movie and again the visuals to me were the strongest part like i was just I mean, IMAX experience, I was just like sucking in all the visuals into my eyeballs. So I was like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, it's clear how much care and effort was put into these fight sequences and the visuals um, for this movie. And on top of that, while the music was stunning for all of the very emotional portions of the film, I actually found the music during the fight sequences to be more impactful because it just enhanced and and complemented the visuals so well like the the combination of those two just took those fight scenes to a whole other level for me Mm -hmm. um i really appreciated in this first enmu fight that um the way they they animated tanjiro getting knocked out and then coming back like like him getting knocked out and then like snapping back awake Mm -hmm. that was so well done that had to be one of my favorite parts of the movie um unexpectedly like i just the sound effect they used too like they the the way the camera looked was like shaky right because he's on top of a train he's stumbling around because he gets knocked Mm -hmm. out his head you know um kind of rocks backwards and then it snaps forward again and the sound effect that you get when he snaps awake was just so great as he's actually snapping his head forward um and i just yeah the whole thing was was well coordinated and i could kind of like feel those moments happening each time he snapped awake yeah on the opposite end of the spectrum you get the meh animation quality of this movie and that is all i can say is cgi yeah you're absolutely <laughs> right what what gives us one of the best visuals also gives us one of the nastiest visuals mm-hmm. in this film cgi meat train i am not here for that hard pass like mm-hmm. it just looked so weird with a 2d head floating against this 3d model i don't even know model of like what was supposed to be meat but i think it looked like bubble gum the whole time yeah <laughs> that was probably the only thing in this movie that killed my immersion was just the cgi bubblegum meat yeah the fleshy blobs are just awful um they really did stick out like sore thumbs from these 2d characters and even like the environmental backdrops uh it felt like i was looking at cgi used in a 90s like film yeah or like an old flash movie from like Newgrounds. the Mm -hmm. the 2d head like enmu's 2d head trying to you know, move at a well-coordinated pace with the 3D bubblegum meat behind it. It just, yeah, it reminded me of something off of Newgrounds. Yeah, but I guess I can kind of understand now why they wanted to make this arc into a movie so they could have a expanded CGI budget to put in um, these these fleshy blobs on this moving train. Um, but yeah, that part, to get the, the sakuga of the initial part of Tanjun and was fight and then go into this weird hellish visual is just very jarring 
Yeah, and we're not CGI anime fans here. <laughs> no, not not too much. With all that said, um, let's talk about the actual fight. Oh, I guess fights, plural, um, between Enmu, Tanjiro, and then everybody else because Inosuke shows up towards the end. Um, so Enmu in general was set up to be this crazy strong villain that Kibutsuji further powers up with his blood at the end of season one. Um, they made Enmu seem like a complete psycho and fanatic, like he was going to be this big threat. And he was kind of boring in this movie. Mm. He talked way too much. <laughs> Even when he was facing off with Tanjiro, which I know is an anime trope to have a full-blown conversation in the middle of a fucking fight, but he just would not stop talking. And it was helpful information, don't get me wrong, because he was painting this picture because um, he only had two hours to kind of explain what the fuck was going on. But my God, he never stopped talking. Even when he mm -hmm. died, he kept fucking <laughs> yeah. talking. I'm like, just do something. Yeah, it's it's the the villain or the yeah the villain trope where they just talk too much about their plans and their schemes. Yeah, he didn't live up to any of the setup that we got from the end of season one. Mm -hmm. um, he literally just became a bubblegum meat train who whined and complained when he slowly died at the end. I mean, I get what they were going for it in that Enmu is a more unconventional villain because you kind of juxtapose him against Akaza who shows up at the end and he's your typical um, skilled fighter villain. Uh, so I guess in this sense, it's almost like he is, here's my other Dark Knight reference, he is the Joker where it's not all brawn but mostly brains um, that fuels Enmu's, I guess, villainous intellect. Um but, yeah, he, he ends up falling flat because, as you said, seeing him get more of Muzan's blood or Kibutsuji's blood in the end of season one, and then he has this masterful plan where, again, he has a unique trait of, you know, being able to dispense of people through dreams, but then he gets duped by the demon slayers. And so his last resort is to become this crazy train, but then even, even then with his physical um, upgrade, he still gets beaten up at the end it's like it's very underwhelming and going back to the whole dream sequence i mentioned this earlier and i'll, I'll kind of expand on it my my problem with enmu for the first part of the movie is that they set up this whole dream concept and this is his big skill but it goes nowhere um, again it serves well in giving us glimpses into the the demon slayers like personalities and backstories um, and it sets up Tanjiro being able to like and hero over and over again. But other than that, it goes nowhere after that. Um, Enmu instead switches to the meat train and tries to eat humans and then like doesn't even acknowledge like mm -hmm. the dream sequences after that other than him trying to knock out Tanjiro again when he has all those eyeballs coming out when he's trying to protect his his spine at the front of the train. And then it highlights um, Inosuke's true intellect because he was not affected at all by the eyes because what was it and we didn't know where he was looking because he has the stupid boar mask on. yeah <laughs> so yeah i just felt like this whole thing like i don't know there's always this setup with enmu and then there's no delivery on it like again at the end of season one he gets set up to be this like crazy psycho character and he doesn't really do much in fact he has like henchmen do stuff for him mm -hmm. and then he we get this whole setup of the dream sequence and like he loves to kill people in their final moments 
we don't even really see that other than like the one moment there's like a flashback of him killing someone on the train yeah and then he becomes the meat train and then he doesn't really do anything he just like like he doesn't even try to really attack the demon slayers except for when he kind of pins down nesco he instead just Mm -hmm. tries to eat the people while everyone's just cutting off his limbs and stuff so i don't know i just there was like a lot of disappointment with enmu and on top of that I felt like, and I'll kind of talk about Akaza a little bit here, but I felt like both Enmu and Akaza have like no interesting aspects to them other than, again, one is sadistic and then the other one is crazy strong. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll share a little bit more about Akaza, I guess, when we get to that part. Um, and But I think that with Enmu, I was expecting him to have some sort of backstory like all the other big baddies that Tanjiro has faced. So we always kind of get that backstory leading up to the big fight between Tanjiro and one of the demons where we see their life as a human, their transition into a demon, and then we see Tanjiro's connection somehow um, and him developing sympathy toward them um, as he tries to, or I guess, successfully freeze them from their fates as demons. Um, and no matter how evil or strong they are, Tanjiro always does have some sort of sympathy toward the the demon at the end of the day. We didn't get that with Enmu. In fact, to your earlier point, Tanjiro like, is fucking angry at Enmu. Mm-hmm. He has zero sympathy toward him. There's no acknowledgement of all at all of who he was as a human. And Tanjiro fucking hates his god. <laughs> like, it's just, it's so different than every other fight that Tanjiro's had with a big baddie up until this point. Yeah, I, I forgot totally that a lot of the first season is Tanjiro empathizing with the demons. Um, yeah, maybe it's we didn't get any of that here, um, or at least with in terms of Enwa's backstory, because there was only so much that they could fit within a two-hour movie. Um, but yeah, I feel like with Enmu having this dream sequence power, going into the the meat train power is just them trying to find a way to like close up his story and it was just very the way they did it was just very muddled coupled with the visuals it, it's again it was jarring um so as much as they hyped up Enmu to be this this crazy unconventional villain he really wasn't anything special in the end and now entering the final part of the film Rengoku comforts Tanjiro in the train wreckage until Akaza part of the upper moon three flies in to literally derail the rest of the movie Rengoku fights against the discount Sukuna, who incessantly persuades him to become a demon so he can retain his impressive skills in immortality. A flashback memory of his mother convinces Rengoku otherwise, and he is morally gut-punched by discount Sukuna while struggling to keep him at bay for the sun to disintegrate him. Akaza breaks free of Rengoku's grasp while he runs into a nearby forest, and Tanjiro calls him out for being a pussy bitch. Rengoku gives Tanjiro and Ko the cliche speech of a dying man telling his successors to keep fighting the good fight, and he informs Tanjiro that there is some light reading he could do at his parents' house about the Hinokami Kagura breathing style before dying in true cinematic fashion. The other members of the Hashira Hashira are informed of Rengoku's death via Kasagai Crow, and Tanjiro closes out the movie with the obligatory shounen protagonist crying his eyes out shot, for Rengoku will suyoku nareru no more. And I know we brought this up at the beginning, but I'd like to just reiterate again that Rengoku's wrap-up at this quote-unquote epilogue portion of the movie just feels like it was hastily placed at the end. And as I mentioned before, it just muddles the pacing of the rest of the movie. 
because you feel like you know the conflict is over once Tanjiro uh, and Inosuke cut off Enmu's head at the head of the train and then this random upper rank demon of the Kazuki just shows up for no real reason other than to just bring Rengoku's part of the story to a close yeah um it was a plot twist but not one that worked it didn't land at mm-hmm. all um i i didn't mind so as i said earlier i actually found the um, akasa fight to be way more interesting than the Enmu fights plural um and we, we can talk a little bit more about that but i think we should first talk about rengoku or no should we do it the other way around what do you think is better should we talk about akasa first and then talk about rengoku or should we flip-flop that I mean, is there a lot to talk about with Akaza? He just shows up. And there's really no backstory, backstory other than he loves martial arts. <laughs> <laughs> right? um, true. Okay, so let's talk about Akaza first. So I found him to be far more interesting, despite him being the random secondary villain that shows up at the climax or after the climax, the secondary climax, mm-hmm. um, than Enmu. Like, he was way more interesting than Enmu ever was. He wanted Rengoku to become a demon, and tries very hard to convince him to the point where he even begs him when he realizes Rengoku is definitely going to die um, because he doesn't want his talent to be wasted. That's interesting to me. I'm like, why? Why are you so desperate to have Rengoku join you? Like, that's cool. Because most mm-hmm. most demons, you know, might be like, or most villains might be like, hey, you should join us. And then the protagonist or the, the hero says like, no, I'm never going to do that. And they're like, okay, well, I'm going to have to kill you then. But he continually like tries to convince Rengoku to become a demon. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I found that super intriguing and that makes me want to learn more about Akaza because I wonder if he became a demon in a similar similar way. I'm interested in his backstory. Like who is this guy? I'm interested. I want to know his human side and how he became a demon and how, if at all, um, Tanjiro will sympathize and want to kind of free him from his demon fate like all the others but not what happened with Enmu. Um, and he actually puts up a good fight and is crazy strong. And I, I think, I really think at the end of the day, his whole purpose was just to give us a taste of the upper three. Was it upper three? Yeah. The upper three, how crazy strong they are, where even Rengoku, who I think, I don't think he's like the strongest Hashira, but I think he's up there um, mm-hmm. in terms of like the overall nine, where even he takes down Rengoku, um, you know, at the end of the day. So I get... I get why he was introduced. I just don't think it makes sense from like a pacing and plot perspective. Yeah, as I said earlier, because you make very interesting points about Akaza as this um, almost sympathetic villain to uh, Rengoku. Um, If the plot had interweaved more of him and us getting little hints of his, I guess, M.O., like I, I would have better accepted this as the actual climax of the film, because um, yeah, now that you mention it, he has like those Kylo Ren vibes of trying to convince people to join the the dark side. Yeah, but yeah, and I think this is another point where it, you just have to like it. The movie just forces you to watch the second season because I'm sure it's gonna pick up on Akaza's backstory after that point. Um, so. In that sense, they should have just included his part. I mean, I get like he has to be at this point of the story to close out Rengoku's story. Um, But I think if they paced the movie better, they could have just included him with the next season that follows what happens with Mugen Train. 
Yeah. Um, I So as you were saying that, I just kind of realized one thing I did want to say about Enmu um, as he's dying right before Akaza shows up. I really appreciated that they showed Enmu's extreme frustration as he's slowly dying. Again, mm. he's talking way too much at this part. Like, just die already. But... I appreciated that he he thought he was hot shit. He gets, you know, Kibutsuji's, Kibutsuji's blood. He thinks he's amazing, um, that he's going to take down all the demon slayers, including Rengoku. And then it turns out that somehow these low-level slayers or demon slayers took him down instead, and he's just super frustrated and confused by it. And he even says, like, I, I just wanted to become one of the uppers. Um, I'll never be able to do that. You know, why am I dying? I, you know, it's all of their faults, blah, blah, blah. So I thought that was cool because most villains don't complain and whine and bitch like that. Mm -hmm. It did make sense for Enmu's character from what we got throughout this film. Um, but yeah, I thought that was a, a unique death. It wasn't a demon slayer death because again, Tanjiro didn't feel any sympathy. He didn't free Enmu from this demon fate, but at least it was something different. Now, Akaza, um, I... I want to see more of him. I love the panic that we get at the end of the fight with Rengoku as the sun is rising. I thought that was so, so like real. Like he mm -hmm. just, he's this big baddie, right? Like he's even more of a threat than Enmu is. He's just owning this fight against Rengoku and suddenly the sun is coming up and he becomes a big bitch. <laughs> like, yeah. He just freaks the fuck out and even says like, what are you talking about? I don't care about Rengoku. I'm trying to get away from the sun. I think when like Tanjiro's like yelling at him or whatever, you get that inner monologue from Akaza. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm just trying to get the fuck away from the sun. I thought that was really cool. It's just interesting to see such a high level, high ranking enemy be so panicked by something as simple as the sun. Yeah, it just shows you that these big baddies aren't really that aren't really tough shit at all. Um, they <laughs> yeah. can be taken down by something so trivial. Um, and it's it's so it's frustrating to see that Akaza gets away with this and that we don't really see Tanjiro take revenge. Although I know he's like too inexperienced um, to take on an upper three. Oh, what is it? Upper moon three. Um, but to be robbed of that moment to exact revenge was wasn't unsatisfying, but it's like, man... Like, that just makes Rengoku's death even more tragic. I agree. It was not unsatisfying. And I saw some some pretty heavy thoughts about, um, about Akaza getting away at the end of it. And I think that was a fantastic choice because mm -hmm. it would have made his whole fight even more random and pointless if Rengoku, even if Rengoku died, if he was able to also kill Akaza at that moment, I would have been like, what was the fucking point? I would have mm -hmm. just rather have waited to see the other upper Kizuki when they're introduced in the, in the show and seeing like their proper threat versus just some dude who shows up and then dies. So I think it was great that Akaza got away, that he panicked about the sun um, and that Tanjiro is fueled by, you know, revenge against Akaza for Rengoku's death. Although Tanjiro is a little bit annoying in that screaming portion. I liked it, but it did drag on a little bit long. Mm -hmm. I agree. It, yeah, I don't know. It just felt very cliche anime. And I said before that, you know, Tanjiro, the way, I like him so much because he kind of deviates a little bit from the cliche protagonist characteristics. But this one is like, uh, like I, you're, I guess you're reminded that you are watching an anime, as, as weird as that statement sounds. I think I found it slightly off because he's so angry. 
right? Mm. Like, it's just that's not Tanjiro's nature. Like, yeah, he gets fueled by shit. Um, he set his heart ablaze because of Rengoku in this moment, but it just seemed a little bit off for Tanjiro's character to be so fucking pissed and frustrated that he literally yeets his very rare black sword, his second very rare oh, yeah. black sword, right into Akaza, um, which was cool. Don't get me wrong. I, I like that moment, and I can't wait to see what happens when he tells the the blacksmith that he, he, did it he got rid of another black sword, um, but it just felt slightly off from Tanjiro because I did take note of the fact that Ta- they stayed very true to Tanjiro's character throughout most of this film, um, especially after Akasa kills Rengoku. Um, of course, he cries like crazy, as he always does, but it feels believable. Like His frustration is in, in his sadness just feels very genuine in that moment, and it's even more so because we know what his character is like. Like a death like this would hit Tanjiro really, really hard. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. Um, and I, I did like that he he chased after Akaza and called him a coward and um, said that, you know, Rengoku didn't lose the fight. Like he saved everyone on the train. He won, even though he knows he's dying. I'm like, this is like, this is the Tanjiro I know. But the anger behind that, that kind of wasn't the Tanjiro that I've come to know. See, I, I kind of agree with you there, but there are parts where I feel like, again, Tanjiro is falling into a trope of becoming the sulky and self-deprecating like male anime protagonist um, after Rengoku's death. And like I get it, it's, it's traumatizing to see someone that you respect be so mortally defeated. Um, but I, I don't know, like, I think the point where he says that he will never reach Rengoku's level, even though Rengoku specifically states that he believes in him and I guess literally gives him the key to learning more about the the Kagura dance power or whatever. That's where I was like, this is Tanjiro. This Tanjiro seems so much out of his element. And I guess another smart point of the movie for Inosuke is that Inosuke is the one who slaps him out of it and tells him like, you you can't continue to think this way. Like we have to train and train harder. Mm-hmm. So I like that. It That kind of brings Tanjiro back into his element. But for that one fleeting moment where Tanjiro loses confidence in himself, I thought was a little bit out of character for him. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. There, there are just some, some things that Tanjiro did and said in this movie that made him feel different than what mm-hmm. we've come to know him as throughout the anime. And I do want to, I guess, take this opportunity to transition a little bit into what I said earlier I f- was the weakest part of the movie, which is the plot, more so around Rengoku. Mm-hmm. Not Rengoku himself, but everything kind of happening around him, his interactions, his relationships. Um, that, w- to me, was just not the part that, that carried the movie for me. Um, so when you think about it, Tanjiro has not met Rengoku formally before this train sequence, right? Like mm-hmm. you said earlier, he saw him at Nezuko's trial, but they never interacted. And so so it's essentially the first time they're getting to know each other. Um and it's just like I don't know, a, a small part of me by the end of the movie when he dies and Tanjiro's crying, I'm just kind of like, okay, like what was the point of all this? <laughs> okay. Like <laughs> like I I don't know, the way I would describe it is 
Um, yes, the point is to pass the torch to Tanjiro and to show the strength of the Hashira as well as the strength of the upper demons, but it's less impactful when we're not emotionally invested in Rengoku prior to this movie. And then they try to pack so much in and make us have this emotional connection right before his death. Like it just doesn't click. And then when Tanjiro is sobbing about his death, which is incredibly sad, I'm just like, dude, you met the guy two hours ago. Mm-hmm. You met him two hours ago. And the first time you actually saw him, you know, you were kind of getting beat beat up emotionally about your sister and everyone wanted to kill her. <laughs> and I think, I don't know, actually, was was uh, Rengoku part of the, the, the group that wanted to get rid of Nesco at that trial? I don't remember. I feel like he wouldn't just because of his personality. Um, I know he, like, he affirms at the... Uh, in his dying words that he considers Nesco as a true demon slayer. But I don't know if he had always thought that from the get-go. Yeah. I think we'd have to just rewatch that scene to see his actual thoughts. But I completely agree with everything that you said. It's weird for Tanjiro to have such an emotional response to Rengoku's death when they barely knew each other uh, from the beginning. And like you said, I, I know this is like the passing of the torch, um, from like a Hashira to an apprentice. But, you know, if it were someone like, I think Gyo is one of the Hashira that Tanjiro has most interacted with and identified with. If it were him in this position, I think, you know, we as audience members who are familiar with the story, we would receive that more impactfully rather than this, not like he's a throwaway Hashira, but an inconsequential Hashira. I will say that the one thing that I do like about Rengoku's story here at the end, especially after they show the flashback where he keeps a promise to his mother to always save those who are weak because he is a strong boy. Um, (laughs) It kind of reinforces the purpose of the demon slayers and like why they are fighting against these demons. And again, hearkening back to why Tanjiro and fights like why he fights for um, or fights against the demons is the the preservation of this concept of the beauty of human nature where we see with Akaza, like demons, they savor immortality and power, but Rengoku symbolizes humanity, learning to cherish what they have with the time that they're given and seeking to serve like the common good rather than acting upon these selfish desires like the demons. So you see all of that conceptualized and emphasized in Rengoku's fight against Akaza. So it was nice to see that portion, but again, we don't have enough of, we don't have enough screen time with Rengoku to really connect with him. And I feel like maybe in the second season, if Tanjiro ever ends up going to the, um, was it Kyojuro? Is that his last name? The Kyojuro household? Yeah. Um, if we'll get more flashback sequences showing like Rengoku in his prime, but then that'll be after the fact. Um, so it would have been nice to, if they have those moments, it would have been nice to actually have them with Rengoku in the present rather than looking back retroactively. A hundred percent agree. Rengoku is such a fucking cool character. He's almost as wholesome and good as Tanjiro is, um, but with all the skills that Tanjiro wishes he had, I want more of Rengoku, but here mm-hmm. it's like I literally just get two hours of Rengoku. 
Um, and I, I just think if they had spent a little bit, just a little bit of time in season one to give us the backstory that we got in this movie, I would be emotionally invested in the way that they had hoped in order for his death to be as impactful as they also hoped. Um, but I just, again, it was sad. I got choked up. Um, but I just, I feel like, okay, I can move on. Rengoku died. Like, yeah, that sucks, but <laughs> all right, no no big deal, I guess. <laughs> I don't know anything about him, and really, neither does Tanjiro Zenitsu or Inosuke or Nesko. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Like, if, you know, if Kyu were the the Hashira um, in this movie, I think that would have been a lot more resonating with us. Hell yeah, and I hope... <laughs> I hope you doesn't die. I love you. <laughs> oh my god, I love you so much. <laughs> yeah, we only got him for like two seconds in this movie. He said like one word. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> and I believe we cannot end this podcast about Demon Slayer without talking about the musical theme of the movie. Am I right? Yeah, Lisa. Lisa. Uh, so the song Homura by Lisa, which plays over the end credits and was featured a lot in the promotional materials for this movie. So Homura roughly translates to flame in Japanese, and that makes sense because Rengoku is the flame Hashira. Although when I looked this up on Google, it automatically detected the, the character for Homura as Chinese and it translated it to inflammation. <laughs> That's why I, I was laughing earlier, putting together my notes, and you're asking why I was laughing. <laughs> it was like, this can't be what the title means, because this sounds like a disease <laughs> instead of something as symbolic as flame, which was the actual translation. But You know what? I like inflammation. That's what I'm going to go with in my head. <laughs> but what did you think about this theme uh, for the movie? At first, I didn't like it. I thought it was like, okay, because in my mind, I think... Um, Gurenge. Gurenge, thank you. Gurenge is like one of the best anime openings ever, like song-wise. Mm-hmm. The visuals are, are good, but they're they're pretty standard in my mind. But the song, I mean, holy shit. They're, I, could, I consistently crank the volume in the car anytime the song comes on to like max volume. And I'm sure all the other cars on the road are probably like, what the fuck's happening in that car? Mm. But I, I just, it, it evokes such hype to me. And then I listen to this one. I'm like, it's a, it's a ballad. It's a little more somber. It just doesn't slap the same way. But seeing it or rather hearing it in the context of the movie or rather after the movie, did mm-hmm. not, did the lyrics not pop up till the end credits. Yeah. Well, leaving that that final moment with Rengoku seeing his death and then transitioning into the end credits where the song played, I was like, yes, okay, this makes sense now. Because um, all we got before was just the trailer mm-hmm. and the song. And I, I didn't make that connection, but now I feel like it's a perfect fit given the level of feels that were consistently delivered across this movie. Yeah, I agree with all your points. This isn't as much of a powerhouse song as Gurenge, but... Obviously, this one definitely hits you in the feels within the context of the movie. And, you know, it's your typical anime lyrics of, you know, moving forward with resolve after some traumatic event. But I think Lisa's delivery and the haunting melody of the song just make it a lot more impactful and a lot more resonant with the movie's themes. Um, And for those of you who are interested, I think Lisa actually does a live version of this song or a live one take of this song on the 
what's the name of the channel? It's like, I think it's called, oh, it's called The First Take. So if you are interested, definitely give that video a listen. Um, because like, her vocals in that, like you can even feel the emotion as she's singing the song. And I'm pretty sure like she tears up towards the end just because it's such a powerful song with a, with a, a powerful message um, that again works so well with what happens in this movie um and you know i don't know if they will continue to use lisa um as the singer for the either the ops or the eds for the forthcoming demon slayer seasons but i think she's pretty much become synonymous with the series so it it would just make sense if she still were involved with the production i hope she stays uh stays on with it because i think she does a great job Mm mm-hmm so before we get into final thoughts, let's let's touch on any other thoughts that we have on this movie. Because I do have a couple of like random things that I, I want to bring up. Um, first off, I just want to reiterate this point that really two fights was not necessary for this movie. We just needed one big baddie and we needed that to be well flushed out. Like again, Enmu mm-hmm. died way easier than expected. And then Akaza comes out of nowhere and apparently is OP as fuck. And we literally don't know anything about him. I just think while in the manga, yes, Akaza shows up and they probably wanted to stay true to the manga, but I think it would have just been a better choice to cut Akaza out or maybe save him somehow for season two and just focus on Enmu and give him less dialogue <laughs> more mm-hmm. fighting less dialogue and okay um i just i really feel like that would have been one thing one major change they could have made that would have really improved this movie with that said i really appreciated how much the main trio struggled main trio plus nezco um made, what's what's trio what's for four Qua- quartet quartet i was about to say quadruple mm-hmm. <laughs> the main quartet um, how much they struggled to fend off the bad guys in this movie um, and how much it took out of them during the Enmu fight where Tanjiro couldn't even physically help when Akasa showed up and Inosuke with his you know strong intuition knew he'd be a hindrance rather than any help to Rengoku and didn't even try to assist. Um, I thought that was great because again in season one you see very realistic timelines with everyone's training, especially Tanjiro, who has like one to two years become before he even becomes strong enough to to do his shit. So I thought that was great. I was worried that they were just going to make them suddenly OP just for this movie, but we really did see the struggle, um, and I thought that was a smart choice. Yeah, I mean, because again, you're putting up these novices against who are, we are supposed to consider these top tier demons. So it, again, it doesn't make sense for them to, to suddenly have the upper hand against Enmu or, or Akaza. Um, I didn't really have any other lingering thoughts uh, with the movie. I think I pretty much addressed everything um, that I had in our discussion. The only thing that I did notice, although we do see the quartet um, and I would say that the main part of the quartet, the trio got enough balanced screen time. We didn't really see a lot of Nezko. I felt like she was just more of a cameo in this movie. I disagree. Mm. I think that you're correct that Nezko, like more, more so had a cameo for sure. She got gypped by all means. 
but I feel like Zenitsu got gypped almost as much as Nezuko. Mm. I so this is my my very last thought was um on the other three besides Tanjiro. So with Zenitsu, definitely needed more screen time, and it's not just because he's my favorite character of the show, and I always want to see more of him. But I just felt like he was there for the comic relief, and then to save Nezuko, and then that was it. Even in at the very end, like I loved seeing Inosuke and Tanjiro fight together and be well coordinated. But I just felt like Zenitsu got left out. Like he's just as important as Inosuke is to this trio. I would have liked to have seen something from him in that last fight. But I get it though, because I think at this point in the story, his ability to fight using his first form while he's sleeping hasn't been revealed yet to anyone except for Nezuko through Mm. this movie. So it makes sense that he can't be part of the fight because if he were awake he wouldn't be able to fight and if he were asleep then we'd get you know we'd be getting that that reveal maybe sooner than expected um but i would have loved to see more screen time for him and more meaningful screen time for him versus just being that comic relief i can see that although i would say like his scene where he does come in with the first form and it's because he's saving nesco i thought that was plenty. <laughs> it was awesome. That like, was plenty of Zenitsu. That was great. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think that he could have been saving anyone, but the fact that he was saving Nezuko was just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And he was the only one that didn't snap awake from um, Enmu's uh, blood art. So, yeah, it all kind of worked out great. Um, Inosuke, as I said earlier, fucking blew me away. He's the true star of the movie. Yeah, he was on point, absolutely hilarious. Um, most notably at the very end when he runs over to Tanjiro after the the train crashes and he says, are you okay, Santaro? And I forgot (laughs) up until that point that he cannot remember Tanjiro's name or he only gets it right like once out of every like five attempts. Yeah, seven attempts. Okay. (laughs) So I I was laughing so hard in the theater. I, I just couldn't stop. Even as it transitioned back into like feels, I was still laughing at that part. And then after Rengoku dies, you know, Tanjiro's crying, um, Zenitsu's crying, and then they they pan over to Inosuke crying, but he's running around flailing his arms while he's crying like some two-year-old child. And then as they're all just, you know, collectively crying, he grabs Tanjiro and drags him away and says, okay, we got to train right now. Like, come on, we got to train, like immediately in the middle of this very emotional scene. So yeah, he he was just great, but those two parts I think were my, my favorite. Um, I do want to acknowledge though, the climactic fight um, against Enmu where they're trying to slice his spine or whatever, or his, his neck. neck. Inosuke was fantastic throughout that fight. He really had the upper hand. He protected Tanjiro. I mean, without without Inosuke there, Tanjiro would have died for sure. Yeah, you can't have one without the other. And that brings us into our final thoughts for Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba, the movie Mugen Train. So how many umais out of 10 would you give this movie? I would give it a solid 8 out of 10. Um, I thought, again, it was very good, but it wasn't perfect. Um, I think I could easily give it a 9 out of 10 if the plot was a little more cleaned up. Mm -hmm. But with that said, I cannot deny how beautiful this movie is, both with the visuals, the music... Um, and just the way that they, I wouldn't say there was a lot of character development in this movie, but it was just more so enhancing and really um, giving us a, a, another look into 
the characters' traits as we know them already. Um, and I thought that was great, especially because it's been a while since we've had season one. I just love being able to be reminded in a new way of what these characters are all about and what their level of ability is and what they're striving for. So yeah, I would say overall, I enjoyed it a lot. I was just disappointed in some of the the story choices. Um, and had they used another slice in the manga, I think this would have been easily like a nine, nine and a half out of 10. But what, what's your rating? I would also give this eight umais out of 10 um, with a lot of the comments that you hold the visuals, the sound effects, and the music were just stunning. So major props to UFO Table for doing such a superb job with the material. Um, but yeah, I think the part that kind of holds me back from giving this like a 9 or a 10 is that it just feels like two arcs in one movie, or as I've alluded to before, like you get a movie and then this really lengthy epilogue that doesn't that feels a little bit out of place and I think it should have been infused more with the main conflict. Um, but I guess on a more conceptual level, it will just be interesting to see if this movie starts to set a precedent for how certain arcs in anime adaptations are, are adapted. Um, whether they can start counting films as canon versus squeezing in these cash grabs into convenient spots in the story that won't severely interrupt canon and i'm looking at you my hero i know there's a third movie coming out but part of me doesn't really want to see that because who knows if it will even matter in the end yeah i hate that i hate when it's not canon because you watch it you get so hype about it but at the end of the day you're like this makes no difference like Mm -hmm. i could have continued watching the anime and it would have just been the same shit without the movie here it's like if someone thinks that they're not supposed to watch the movie and they go right into season two they're gonna be really fucking confused mm-hmm. they're gonna be like who was Ren Goku again why is yeah. he important but yeah I just I don't know I I really want to see more of Ren Goku I hope even if it's just through like flashbacks um, or seeing his impact on the main characters moving forward I hope we get more of him somehow because Man, he's a cool fucking character, and I only got two hours of him. Yeah, um, and I think that's one hindrance with you know going into a movie format. But you know, I think for what we got, I thought it worked well um, as a cinematic experience. And you know, I'm sure like other studios are looking at the success of this movie, and hell, it's it's breaking box office records. Um, even in this strange situation of the pandemic. Um, but yeah, it will be interesting to see what the future of animes, animes, the future of anime movies is going to look like now that we have Train to Muzan out in the open. Train to Muzan. I know, missed opportunity there. Yeah. Let's just call that out really quick here. You have <laughs> Mugen Train, but you could have called it in the spirit of Train to Muzan. Yeah, Train to Busan. Busan? Train to Busan. You could have called it Train to Muzan. Although, how do you think about where the hell was this train heading? Um, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember. I guess that's, that's, I know we're almost like way over time here, but that's one thing about this movie. They, They were commenting how this train line specifically has had many people die. But then they never mentioned the destination of this journey, or at least, or of this train at least. To my knowledge, they'd never mentioned it. It's um Or is it because it's a Mugen train? The infinity train. 
It's on its way to set their hearts ablaze. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To set their inflammation ablaze. (laughs) And that wraps up episode 33 of Strictly Anime. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash the Strictly series and be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast service so you can be notified when new episodes premiere every other Monday. Follow us on Instagram at the Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series and connect with us there or on our website, thestrictlyseries.com to share your thoughts on the anime we review. You'll also find more info on Strictly Jojo, our other podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb. Oh,